welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hi. Hey, Jewel. Hi. Hi. How's it going <laughs> across town? Uh, things are fine. I think we have similar weather uh, as you are having. Um, we've been uh, very um, creative with our entertainment, etc. Mm-hmm. We had yesterday, um, we had a bunch of people get together on Zoom and we watched all of the Lord of the Rings movies. Yes. And by all, you mean the extended cut director's yes. version discs. Yes. 12 so hours. So you just worth. finished like like a half Like an six hour hours ago. ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We started at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard and uh, we finished around 1230. Ugh. Yeah. It was a lot. But Steve made scones. So, you yeah. know, all is well yeah. on that. Um, so it worked out, uh, <laughs> for me specifically. Um, but you know, uh, things are weird now. We have to figure out stuff. And I feel like, again, going off of, you know, teach what you know, um, a lot of words, uh, have been being tossed around online. And one of those words is surreal. Mm, yes. Things are very surreal very right now. Very surreal. So, uh, I decided that my topic today is going to be on Dada and Surrealism. Wonderful. Yes, I'm, I'm very excited about it, and uh, uh, we shall see how it goes. So, uh, to start off, we're going to be talking about Dada and Surrealism as mostly as an art movement, as like you know, fine art movement. Although there was a lot of, uh, you know, Dada and Surrealism kind of went in also into music and theater and mm-hmm. writing and poetry and that kind of thing. But we're going to focus today on specifically um, art. So we'll start with Dada because it's the earlier like movement. Sure. Um, Dada or Dadaism was an art movement of the European avant-garde in the early 20th century with early centers in Zurich, Switzerland, um, and also at the Cabaret Voltaire, which I'll talk mm. about in a moment. Um, and the New York Dada began around circa 1915, and after 1920, Dada flourished in Paris. Uh, the Dada movement consisted of artists who rejected the logic, reason, and asceticism of modern capitalist society, instead expressing nonsense, irrationality, and anti-bourgeois protest in their work. Uh, the art of the movement spanned visual, literary, and sound media, including collage, sound poetry, cut-up writing, which I'll define later, hmm. and sculpture. Uh, Dadaist artists expressed their discontent toward violence, war, and nationalism, and maintained political affinities with the radical far left. Um, so the the word Dada yeah. and where it came from, there's no real consensus as to the origin of the movement's name. There's a common story is that German artist Richel Huselmbach slid a paper knife or a letter opener at random into a dictionary where it landed on the word Dada, which is a colloquial French term for a hobby horse. Mm-hmm. Um, others note that it suggests the first words of a child, evoking childishness and absurdity that appealed to the group. Um, still others speculate that the word may have been chosen to evoke a similar meaning or no meaning at all in any language reflecting the movement's internationalism. So kind of a nonsense word that doesn't really mean anything. Like a, like a yada, da 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 Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. 
Um, so as you can possibly imagine, this was not a super organized movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was informal. It was international um, with participants mostly in Europe and North America. And the beginnings of Dada correspond to the outbreak of World War I. Uh, for many participants, the movement was a protest against the bourgeois nationalist and colonialist interests, which many Dadaists believed were the root cause of the war, and against the cultural and intellectual conformity in art and broadly across society that corresponded to the war. Um, however, the founders of Dada are often considered to be three people, the author and poet Hugo Ball, his wife, her, uh, poet Emily Hennings, they were the two who started um, the Cabaret Voltaire, mm. and Romanian artist Tristan Cesara. Um, so Dada emerged from a period of artistic and literary movements like futurism, cubism, and expressionism centered mainly in Italy, France, and Germany, respectively, in those years. Um, however, unlike the earlier movements, Dada was able to establish a broad base of support, giving rise to a movement that was international in scope. Its adherents were based in cities all over the world, including New York, Zurich, Berlin, Paris, and others, and their original differences like an emphasis on literature in Zurich and an emphasis on political protest in Berlin, for example. Sure. Avant-garde circles outside France knew of pre-war Parisian developments, and they had seen or participated in cubist exhibitions held at Galleries del Mau in Barcelona in 1912, Gallery der Sturm in Berlin in 1912, and the Armory Show in New York in 1913, which is a very famous um, exhibit that like, set off modern art as we know it today. It was a huge thing. Hmm. Um, the SVU Manes in Prague in 1914, and at Der Modern Kustkring in Amsterdam between 1911 and 1915. Um, Futurism developed in response to the work of various artists. That futurism was big in Italy. Futurism had to do with like... um, being a uh, an android and like this idea of um, expressing movement in two dimensions yeah. and um, a lot of Italians were super into it um, and Dada subsequently com- combined the approaches of cubism, futurism, and expressionism. I'm picturing um, the, along with a lot of other things. I'm picturing the film Metropolis. Yes, uh, yes, that's uh, yeah, that's I would say that's futurist for sure. Um, many Dadas believed that the reason and logic of bourgeois capitalist society had led people into war, and they expressed their rejection of that ideology and artistic expression that appeared to reject logic and embrace chaos and irrationality. Um, you'll see that Dada has much more of a nihilist bent to uh. it. It's very like, well, the whole world's heading down the drain. We might as well like lose ourselves in anarchy kind of thing. Great. Um, so yeah, for example, George Gross, uh, later recalled that his Dadaist art was intended as a protest, quote, against this world of mutual destruction. Um, according to artist Hans Richter, Dada was not art, it was anti-art. Uh, Dada represented the opposite of everything which art stood for. Where art was concerned with traditional aesthetics, Dada ignored aesthetics. If art was to appeal to sensibilities, Dada was intended to offend. And I will give some examples of that Mm. in a moment. Uh, a reviewer from the American Art News at the, stated at the time that Dada philosophy is the sickest, most paralyzing, and most destructive thing that has ever originated from the brain of man. Which is like, okay. Um, <laughs> you haven't uh, heard art of Hitler Hitler yet, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, um, wait to see what's to come, my friend. Uh, art historians have described Dada as being in large part a reaction to what many of these artists saw as nothing more than insane spectacle of collective homicide. <laughs> so Dada comes out of 
like a lot of pain and chaos of the First World War. You know, this is the first modern war where people are fighting against each other and using technology. And so this really affected um, artists across Europe and America um, to really like take a real like chaotic nihilist Mm -hmm. bent to that. Um, prominent Dadaists published manif- manifestos, but the movement was loosely organized and there was no central hierarchy. Uh, on July 14th, 1916, Hugo Ball wrote and recited the Dada Manifesto. And in 1917, Tizara wrote a second Dada Manifesto, considered one of the most important Dada writings, and it was published in 1918. Okay. It was just called the Dada Manifesto. Um, In the Dada's perspective, modern art and culture are considered a type of fetishization where the object of consumption, including organized systems of thought like philosophy and morality, are chosen, much like a preference for cake or cherries to fill a void. So this idea of morality being something that you're born with and that you're supposed to use this as like the prevailing force by which you make decisions and how you live your life, this is just an arbitrary thing that you can choose like you know, what you want for dinner. Like morality is not an inherent philosophy. It's it's just something that, you know, it's fetishized, which is like, can I tell you that's such like an intellectualization, like, well, there's no such thing as morality. You know, like it's, it's so insane, but that was their thing. And I kind of don't blame them because a lot of like crazy things were going on at the time. So the cabaret Voltaire, um, the Cabaret Voltaire was housed inside the Hollandish uh, Marai Bar in Zurich, and it was, again, co-funded by poet and cabaret singer Emmy Hennings and Hugo Ball. Uh, the name Cabaret Voltaire was a reference to French philosopher Voltaire, whose novel Candide mocked the religious and philosophical dogmas of the day. So it was along the same lines. Um, opening night was attended by Ball, Tizara, Jean Arp, and Janko. And these artists, along with others like Sophie Tober, Richard Huselnbeck, and Hans Richter, started putting on performances of the Cabaret Voltaire and using art to disp- express their disgust with the war and the interests mm. that inspired it. Okay. So kind of early, like, slam poetry. <laughs> like, yeah. beatnik Performance things. art. Performance yeah, kind art. of beatnik Open mic. Yes, ex- Yes, very open mic. It sounds like it would be an insufferable place, insufferable place to be. Um, so, for example, in Cologne, um, there were a couple of artists who launched a controversial Dada exhibition in 1920, which focused on nonsense and anti-bourgeois sentiments. So Cologne's early spring exhibition was set up in a pub and required that the participants walk past urinals while being read lewd poetry by a woman in a communion dress. Hmm. Um, The police closed the exhibition on grounds of obscenity, but it was reopened when the charges were dropped. So this is the kind of thing, like very performance arty kind of stuff. Okay. Um, like Zurich, New York City was a refuge for writers and artists from the First World War when people were um, leaving their home countries. Soon after arriving from France in 1915, Marcel Duchamp and Francis Picabia met American artist Man Ray. And by 1916, the three of them... Yeah, you remember him. Um, By 1916, the three of them became the center of radical anti-art activities in the U.S. Uh, American Beatrice Wood, who had been studying in France, soon joined them along with uh, a woman named Elsa von Freytag Loringoven, who I will mention later. She was uh, crazy. I love her. <laughs> so uh, much of their activity centered in Alfred Stieglitz's Gallery 291 uh, and the home of Walter and Louise Ehrensberg. So Alfred Stieglitz's Gallery 291 was the home of the armory. Like that was the, oh, okay. the center of the armory show kind of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, 
The New Yorkers, though not particularly organized, <laughs> uh, called their activities Dada, but they did not issue manifestos. Um, they issued challenges to art and culture through publications such as The Blind Man, Wrong Wrong, and New York Dada, which are all like magazines, hmm. zines, I guess, in which they criticized the traditionalist base for museum art. Uh, New York Dada d- lacked the disillusionment of European Dada and was instead driven by a sense of irony and humor. So they weren't so much interested in like the political aspects of it, mostly because World War One didn't really touch the U.S. in in as major of a way as it did in Europe, obviously. Mm. Um, so they were just kind of like, oh, this is so funny. Like, oh, ha, 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 let's do something wild and weird um, and didn't really have a lot of like the philosophical backing it. In general, I should yeah. say. I'm not saying that none of them had like a philosophy base, um, but this was more about theatricality rather than making a statement. Okay. Um, so also during this time, Duchamp began exhibiting ready-mades, which are everyday objects found or purchased and just declared art. Mm-hmm. Um, he used things such as a bottle rack, uh, and he was active in the Society of Independent Artists, which were all people who were kind of doing this kind of thing. Um, in 1917, he submitted the now famous Fountain, which was a urinal signed R. Mutt to the Society of Independent Artists exhibition, but they rejected the piece. Um, first, it was an object of scorn within the arts community. The Fountain has since uh, become almost canonized by some as one of the most recognizable modernist works of sculpture. As recent scholarship documents, the work is still controversial. Uh, Duchamp indicated in a 1917 letter to his sister that a female friend was centrally involved in the conception of the work. Quote, one of my female friends who had adopted the pseudonym Richard Mutt sent me a porcelain urinal as a sculpture. The police, the piece is in line with the scatological aesthetics of Duchamp's neighbor, the Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringoven. Um, so in an attempt to pay homage to the spirit of Dada, a performance artist named Pierre Pinocelli made a crack in the replica of the fountain with a hammer in January of 2006. And he also urinated on it in 1993 to kind of like continue hmm. the work of Duchamp. But here's the thing about fountain. Recently, it has come to light that, you know, he wrote to his sister like, oh, one of my one of my girlfriends like sent me this. And I think it's so funny. Like, I'm going to submit it to the Society of Independent Artists. Yeah as my own um when in fact it was a woman who had you know created the concept of this this work um and it was probably baroness elsa Uh, von freytag laringoven um and she was like the dadaist of the dada like people she had this crazy life like she was born in germany and then she married an american guy and she moved to a like a farm in oklahoma for several years and then they got divorced and then she moved to like Pennsylvania and was like working in Pittsburgh for a while and then she moved to New York and she married a baron a German baron in New York and then she would like show up nude to a lot of stuff and she would like cover herself in like food and like like feces and like take all these pictures and she was like absolutely out of her mind but she was like the queen of Dada at the time Um, and apparently a lot of art historians now Although this has not been changed, like, officially, I don't know who owns uh, the fountain now, or there's been several um, versions of it, but I think um, MoMA owns one of them. And it has not been, like, officially changed, but a lot of prominent art historians are like, no, this was Elsa's. Like, she should at least be considered a co-artist on this um, because it was her idea. So, another example of a man stealing a woman's work. Um, So, Dada as a movement. It was, you know, everywhere, but 
ultimately it was extremely unstable. By 1924 in Paris, Dada was melding into surrealism, and artists had gone on to other ideas and movements, including surrealism, uh, social realism, and other forms of modernism. And some theorists argue that Dada was actually the beginning of postmodern art. Okay. Um, so by the dawn of the Second World War, many of the European Dadaists had emigrated to the U.S. Um, some, including Otto Freundlich and Walter Cerner, died in death camps under Adolf Hitler, who actively persecuted the kind of degenerate art that he considered Dada Ooh. to represent. So the movement became less active as post-war optimism led to a development of new movements in art and literature. Uh, and my last thing on Dada is uh, musician Frank Zappa was a self-proclaimed Dadaist after learning of the movement. Uh, and he uh, said, in the early days, I didn't even know what to call the stuff my life was made of. You can imagine my delight when I discovered that someone in a distant land had the same idea and a nice short name for it. <laughs> so Frank Zappa was considered, a, considered himself to be a Dadaist. Huh, and I would, I would agree with him. Um, so yeah, let's talk about surrealism. So surrealism began around 1917. So there was there was some overlap between mm-hmm. surrealism and Dada. Um, and surrealism in a major way developed out of the Dada activities during World War I. And the most important sep- center of the movement was Paris. Okay. Uh, from the 1920s onward, the movement spread around the globe, impacting the visual arts, literature, film, and music of many countries and languages, as well as political thought and practice, philosophy, and social theory. Uh, the word surrealism was first coined in March 1917 by Guillaume Apollinaire, and he wrote in a letter to Paul Dermay, quote, all things considered, I think, in fact, it is better to adopt surrealism than supernaturalism, which I first used. <laughs> so during the First War, André Breton, who had trained in medicine and psychiatry, served in a neurological hospital where he used Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic method with soldiers suffering from shell shock. Um, back in Paris, he joined in Dada activities and started the literary journal Literature, along with Louis Aragon and Philippe Soupal. Uh, they began experimenting with automatic writing, which is uh, spontaneously writing without censoring their thoughts, just like whatever comes out of your pen just like is out there. And then they would just publish the writings. Very as stream well as of consciousness. Of, yeah, very stream of consciousness. Um, they would also publish accounts of their dreams in this magazine, which was just called Literature. Uh, by October 1924, two rival surrealist groups had formed to publish a surrealist manifesto. So we've got we've got the sharks and the jets here. <laughs> so each each of them claimed to be successors of a re- revolution uh, launched by Apollinaire. So one group was led by Yvonne Gol, consisted of Pierre Albert Biro, Paul Dermay, Celine Arnold, Francis Picabia, Tristan Tazara, who you would remember from the Dada. He wrote the Dada manifesto. Okay. Giuseppe Ungaretti and uh, Robert Delaunay, among others. The group led by André Breton claimed that automism was a better tactic for societal change than those of Dada, as led by Cesara, who were now among their rivals. Um, Breton's group grew to include the writers and artists from various media, such as Paul Eluard, Benjamin Perret, Max Ernst, Salvador Dali, Louis Buñuel, uh, Man Ray, Hans Arp, Georges Malakine, Yon Miro, Marcel Duchamp, Jacques Prévert, and Yves Tanguy. Mm. It should be mentioned that um, Gol, the Ivan Gol, the guy who you know, started the other one. Uh, he published his Surrealist Manifesto two weeks before Breton published his. Well. Yeah. Um, 
However, Gaulle and Breton clashed openly, at one point literally fighting at the Comédie des uh, Champs-Élysées over the rights to the term surrealism. In the end, Breton won the battle through tactical and numerical superiority. He just had more people on his side. Wow. Um, Though the quarrel over surrealism concluded with the victory of Breton, the history of surrealism from that moment would remain marked by fractures, resignations, and resounding excommunications, with each surrealist having their own view of the issue and goals, and accepting more or less the definition laid out by André Breton. So, um, Freud's work with free association dream analysis and the unconscious was of utmost importance to the surrealists in developing methods to liberate imagination. And they embraced idiosyncrasy while rejecting the idea of an underlying madness. As Dali later proclaimed, quote, there is only one difference between a madman and me. I am not mad. So the group aimed to revolutionize human experience in its personal, cultural, social, and political aspects, and they wanted to free people from a false rationality and restrictive customs and structures. Uh, Breton proclaimed that the true aim of surrealism was long live the social revolution and it alone. To this goal, at various times, surrealists aligned with communism and anarchism. So this idea of the difference between Dada and surrealism is Dada was more of a political movement that had more to do with a reaction against violence and authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Surrealism was a little bit more about freeing your mind. So stream of consciousness, allowing yourself no, uh, no inhibitions from society, from your own mind, from anyone else. The purest form of art is what's just going to come out of you without you even thinking about it or planning it. Okay. So, so it's this idea of, and so they were like obsessed with Freud. So they were all about like just doing automatic writing and then, you know, analyzing it. What does this mean about me kind of thing? So um, the movement in the mid-1920s was characterized by meetings in cafes where the surrealists played collaborative drawing games, discussed the theories of surrealism, and developed a variety of techniques such as automatic drawing, as I mentioned before. It sounds, again, insufferable. (laughs) These sound like the worst people. You dated this guy in college. He was the worst. You know what I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) uh, Breton initially doubted that visual arts could even be useful in the surrealist movement Mm. since they appeared to be less malleable and open to chance and automatism. So he liked the idea of like writing as being like the purest form of getting that out of you. And he didn't really see how art could be a part of that. Um, However, soon more visual artists became involved, uh, including Giorgio de Chirico, Max Ernst, Jon Miro, Francis Picabia, Yves Tanguy, Salvador Dali, Louis Brunel, Alberto Giacometti, uh, Valentin Hugo, Murray Oppenheim, Toyen, and also uh, Kansuki Yamamoto, and later after the Second War, Enrico Donati. So these are people from everywhere. Wow. Germany, Italy, um, Japan, everywhere. So, uh, though Breton admired Pablo Picasso and Marcel Duchamp and courted them to join the movement, um, they remained kind of peripheral. Pablo (laughs) was not, like, he would, like, be involved in stuff. Like, he basically invented cubism, and then he was like, meh, I'm fine, and then would, like, leave. So, he never really, like, considered himself a part of any, like, group. Okay. He was a loner anyway. And Duchamp was definitely, like, way more of a Dadaist. He wanted to do, like, weird, gross things, and he didn't really, like, join up. Um, more writers also joined, including former Dadaists Tristan Tazara, René Char, and Georges uh, Sadou. In 1925, an autonomous surrealist group formed in Brussels, and the group, including the musician, poet, and artist E.L.T. Mensens, painter and writer M- René Magritte, who would um, soon, like, get together with Dali, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Nuget, Marcel Lecomte, and André Suri. 
they corresponded regularly with the Paris group, and in 1927, both uh, Gaumans and Magritte moved to Paris and frequented Breton Circle. And the artists with their roots in Dada and Cubism, the abstraction of Wassily Kandinsky, Expressionism, and Post-Impressionism also reached to older bloodlines or proto-surrealists and the so-called primitive and naive arts. So various much older artists are sometimes claimed as precursors to surrealism. Foremost among them are Hieronymus Bosch. Mm -hmm. So Hieronymus Bosch was considered by the surrealists to be like the first surrealist, proto-surrealism. He was like the first guy to do this. Also, Giuseppe Archimboldo, whom Dali called, quote, the father of surrealism. And apart from their followers, other artists who may be mentioned in this context include uh, Joost de Montpère for some anthropomorphic landscapes. He was an early Dutch um, or Flemish painter, and his landscapes are really fantastical. Um, However, many critics feel that these works belong to fantastic art rather than having a significant connection with surrealism. So it was more to do with, like, things based in mythology or dreams. It really wasn't like surrealism in the most like solid sense. Right. Um, but sure. Like you look at Hieronymus Bosch and you're like, wow, that's surreal. So, you know, proto surrealists. What did so Archimboldo do? Uh, Giorgio Archimboldo. You know what? Let oh, me Google it real quick. Was he the guy that did the, like the portraits out of fruit faces and stuff? Oh yeah. That does sound right. Archimboldo portraits. Yep, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Giorgio Archimboldo did those portraits of made up of fruit. So like it made um, people, it looked like people's faces, but it was like a bunch of like fruits and vegetables and plants yes. and stuff like that. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So that would be, that's like fantastical art. It was just mm-hmm. kind of like, hey, you know what? You know what this this uh, this uh, eggplant looks like a nose. I bet I could paint yeah, this eggplant to look like a nose. Wink. <laughs> I mean, they were always portraits, Julia. They weren't like full body things. Anyway. Um, so let's talk about Giorgio de Chirico. He's one of my favorite surrealists who is not actually a surrealist. So Giorgio de Chirico was all about what he called metaphysical art. He was really into like the philosophy of metaphysical, like this idea of like losing yourself and like getting into dreams and like being on a different level than everybody else. And so he started painting um, these great landscapes that had really high light and shadow. We have a Giorgio de Chirico at the mag. And so there were like, he would create these landscapes that look like empty city streets. And then he would just kind of like, He would just plop like a an empty glove and hmm. um, a classical some classical statuary and like these really crazy looking fruits and they all have this um, this really like vivid color and these really harsh light and shadow and it's very unsettling to look at um, because it's like you're sitting in an empty street and there's just like these weird objects around oh, you. Okay. Um, and then he just stopped (laughs) oh so so he was he he was important for surrealism in that he was like one of the important joining figures between the philosophical and visual aspects of surrealism um and it was described as so between 1911 and 1917 he was painting in this surrealist kind of way an unornamented depictional style whose surface would be adopted by others later so a lot of other people like dali would use it um, but after a while, like after 1917, 
he just said, you know what, this isn't working. I'm just going to paint in a classical style. And then continued to paint in a classical style for the rest of his life. But what's interesting about it, because we have a classical piece, it's, it's I think, 1929 or something like that, because he left the Surrealist group in 1928 um, and painted exclusively in classical art style until he died. Um, but we have a classical, ver- like a classical piece that's just, it's a still life of fruit with on a table with a, like a city street background and like a, a drapery in the corner. And while it's definitely classical style, you can still see his weirdy like metaphysical stuff. Like there's still really a lot of weird shadows and the oranges look like they're kind of floating. They're not, huh. they don't seem to have any heft to them. So you, it's kind of funny because he was like, surrealism is dead. Metaphysical art is dead. I'm painting in a classical style, but he still couldn't ever like get away from it in any real way. So it's cool. Um, he was also a writer uh, who had a novel called Hebdomoros. Uh, it presented a series of dreamscapes with an unusual use of punctuation, syntax, and grammar designed to create an atmosphere and frame its images. It sounds impossible to read. Um, he also included uh, set designs for the ballet russes and would create a decorative form of surrealism. And he was probably the main influence for both Dali and Magritte. Okay. Before he gave it all up. Um, so in 1924, Yon Moreau and André Masson applied surrealism specifically to painting. So the first surrealist exhibition, which was called Les Pintures Surrealistes, or the surrealist painters, uh, was held in Paris in 1925. And it displayed works by Masson, Man Ray, Paul Clay, Miro, and others. And the show confirmed that surrealism had a component in the visual arts and techniques from Dada, such as photomontage, were used. So that's just, you know, you take hmm. picture like photographs and um, newspapers, and you would cut them up, mm-hmm. and it would be a photo montage. Um, the following year, on March 26, 1926, Gallery Surrealist opened with an exhibition by Man Ray, and Breton published Surrealism in Painting in 1928, which summarized the movement to that point, though he continued to update the work until the 1960s. Um, so, Surrealism as a political force developed kind of unevenly around the world. Um, in some places, more emphasis was on artistic practices and others on p- political. And in other places still, surrealist practice looked to supersede both the arts and politics. So they were like, it's above it. It's floating above us like in a, as a mist. <laughs> so um, during the 1930s, the surrealist idea spread from Europe to North America, South America, Central America, the Caribbean, and throughout Asia as both an artistic idea and as an ideology of political change. Um, Politically, surrealism was Trotskyist, communist, or anarchist. The split from Dada had been characterized as a split between anarchists and communists with the surrealists as communists. So, as I mentioned before, like, surrealists were more about egalitarianism. The Dada were just like, shut it all down! (laughs) We're, We're fucking it up! Um... It should be mentioned, though, that Salvador Dali supported capitalism and the fascist dictatorship of Francisco Franco, but cannot be said to represent a trend in surrealism in that respect, as you can imagine. Um, In fact, he was considered by Breton and his associates to have betrayed and left surrealism. Um, Also, anti-colonial revolutionary writers in the Negritude movement of Martinique, which was a French colony at the time, took up surrealism as a revolutionary method and a critique of European culture and a radical subjective. So... It was interesting that there were groups that were um, using surrealism as kind of um, as the fuel to create political fire, which is interesting. 
Um, this linked with other surrealists and was very important for the subsequent development of surrealism as a revolutionary practice. And in 1938, André Breton traveled with his wife, the painter Je- uh, Jacqueline Lamba, to Mexico to meet Trotsky because he was staying sure. as the guest of Diego Rivera's former wife, Guadalupe Marán. Uh, and there he met Frida Kahlo and saw her paintings for the first hmm. time. And Breton declared Kahlo to be an innate surrealist painter. So thanks, André. So throughout the 1930s, surrealism continued to be more visible to the public at large. It was huge in the 30s. Like Mm -hmm. Dali and Magritte created the most widely recognized image of the movement. Dali joined the group in 1929, and he participated in the rapid establishment of the visual style between 1930 and 1935. Um, Surrealism as a visual movement had found a method to expose psychological truth, stripping ordinary objects of their normal significance to create a compelling image that was beyond ordinary formal organization in order to evoke empathy from the viewer. Um, Elsa Schiaparelli, who I mentioned in my uh, yes. uh, fashion episode, that's very she it's was like episode six. Yeah, it's very early. Um, she was a, considered a surrealist fashion designer. Okay, yeah, and she collaborated with Dolly on um, the lobster uh, dress that she had created. Mm-hmm. So she was definitely like a she was mainstream. I mean, this was in the '30s for sure. So it wasn't like too weird, but it was definitely surrealist that was her she worked under that philosophy so 1931 was a year where several surrealist painters produced works which marked turning points in their stylistic evolution so magritte's voice of space is an example of this process um, where three large spheres representing bells hang above a landscape Um, and another surrealist landscape from this year is yves tangy's promontory palace with its molten forms and liquid shapes um, liquid shapes became the trademark of Dolly, particularly in his Persistence of Memory, mm-hmm. which features the image of watches that sag as if they were melting. Um, East Tangui had has kind of a like a weird, um, almost eighties kind of quality to it. It reminds me, like the the surface is very slick, like uh, Dolly is. It's okay. like very small brushstrokes that looks like it's created by a computer, basically, <laughs> like very smooth. And uh, Tangi creates these like long spindly legs. And then there's like these weird figures that aren't really humanoid or animal or anything, but they're three dimensional looking and have like a, like a wet glistening quality to them that looks liquid. So it looks like he took like droplets of water or paint or whatever and like painted them in three dimensions onto like a bare landscape. It looks like a salt flat usually or like a desert. Wow. Um, they're very weird. I'm, <laughs> I mean, I, I like Dali, but I think Tangi has more of a, I don't know, it has more of an interest to it. Like Dali can sometimes you look at his art and you're like, all right, I get it. Like he's being like, <laughs> look at me, <laughs> look at how weird this is. And it's a little too like overly thought out. And Magritte has kind of a weird, um, like Magritte is cool because his later stuff, especially when he was really like, like settling into the surrealist stuff. Um, is very thoughtful and beautiful and kind of weirdly sad. Like mm-hmm. it's, um, we went to the uh, Magritte Museum in Brussels and uh, they had a lot of his stuff and he was very prolific. He did a lot of drawing and uh, printing as well as painting. But um, yeah, his stuff is very, I don't know, it has a a weird um, sadness to it that Aww. is interesting that I'm not 100% sure how that fits in but um 
So the characteristics of this style, surrealism, a combination of the depicted, the abstract, the psychological, came to stand for the alienation which many people felt in the modern period, combined with a sense of reaching more deeply into the psyche to be made whole with one's individuality. So they felt like modern society was pulling them away from being like kind of primitive. And so they wanted to get back to that like primitive quality. Um, so long after personal, political, and professional tensions fragmented the Surrealist group, um, Magritte and Dali continued to define a visual program in the arts. This program reached beyond painting to encompass photography as well, as can be seen from a Man Ray self-portrait whose use of assemblage uh, influenced Robert Rauschenberg's collage boxes. So here's an example of like, at peak surrealism, this is what an exhibition would look like. Okay. Okay. So 1938. There was a new exposition, uh, the International Surrealist Exposition at the Beaux Arts Gallery in Paris, with more than 60 artists from different countries and showed around 300 paintings, objects, collages, photographs, and installations. And the Surrealists wanted to create an exhibition which in itself would be a creative act. And so they called on Marcel Duchamp, Wolfgang Palin, uh, Man Ray, and others to do so. So at the exhibition's entrance, Salvador Dali placed his rainy taxi. Okay. So rainy taxi... (laughs) was an old taxi rigged to produce a steady drizzle of water down the inside of the windows and a shark headed creature in the driver's seat and a blonde mannequin crawling with live snails in the back. Okay. So this uh, greeted the patrons when oh, they first walked Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So everyone's in like full evening dress. They walk up. Here's rainy taxi. So, um, they also filled one side of the lobby with mannequins dressed by various surrealists. Okay. So, and also Palin and Duchamp designed the main hall to seem like a cave with 1,200 coal bags suspended from the ceiling over a coal brazier with a single light bulb, which provided the only lighting, oh my as well as the floor covered with uh, like wet leaves and mud. Okay. <laughs> so these are people know what they like, were getting into. I mean, you'd think they would, but who knows? Um, so they're all in evening dress. They're like walking on mud and sticks and there's coal bags hanging in their faces. Um, and they were given flashlights with which to view the art. Um, and on the floor, Wolfgang Palin created a small lake with grasses and the aroma of roasting coffee in the air. (laughs) So it was supposed to be like a multi-sensory surrealist experience. And of course, much to the surrealist satisfaction, the exhibition scandalized the viewers. Sure. People were horrified and they were like, yes, we did it. <laughs> they so hate it. Then, yeah, they hated it. So then World War II shows up. So World War II created not only general havoc for the population but of Europe, but especially for the European artists and writers that opposed fascism and Nazism. Mm-hmm. Uh, many important artists fled to North America in relative safety in the United States. So the art community in New York City in particular was already grappling with surrealist ideas and several artists like Archile Gorky, Jackson Pollock, and Robert Motherwell converged closely with the surrealist artists themselves, albeit with some suspicion and reservations. Um, Ideas concerning the unconscious and dream imagery were quickly embraced. And by the Second World War, the taste of the American avant-garde in New York City swung decisively toward abstract expressionism with the sport of key tastemakers, including Peggy Guggenheim, Leo Steinberg, and Clement Greenberg. Um, However, abstract expressionism itself grew directly out of the meeting of American artists with European surrealists self-exiled during World War II. So, it's, it was kind of a natural progression of these artists coming over to New York and meeting up with New York artists where the surrealism kind of 
naturally went into abstract expressionism, which is this idea of um, creating movement and expression through uh, abstract art. So a perfect example of this is Jackson Pollock. Mm -hmm. So his, his artwork is about movement and not making decisions on where to put the art and just like literally like laying a canvas on the floor and like throwing paint onto the canvas and trying to express this idea of speed and uh, intense movement through a static, you know, two-dimensional object. Mm -hmm. So abstract expression became like the hottest of hot things. Um, So the early work of many abstract expressionists uh, revealed a bond between aspects of both movements and the emergence of aspects of Dadaistic humor in such artists as Rauschenberg, um, which sheds an even starker light on this kind of connection between these two. And up until the emergence of pop art, surrealism can be seen to have been the single most important influence on the sudden growth in American arts. And even in pop art, some of the humor manifested in surrealism can be found, often turned to a cultural criticism. So all of these, I mean, that's the thing about a lot of art movements is that they just kind of like goo from one into the other. And so things just kind of like emerge as they come. So pop art definitely has like very clear ties to surrealism abstract expressionism of course um and so and it like continues today right like these kinds of things this whole like postmodern thing is all built off of surrealism which was built off of data which was built off of you know like all of this stuff um also many significant literary movements in the later half of the 20th century were directly or indirectly influenced by surrealism um known as the postmodern era uh, though there's no widely agreed on central definition of postmodernism, many themes and techniques commonly identified as postmodern are nearly identical to surrealism. And many writers from and associated with the beat generation were influenced greatly by surrealists such as William S. Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, Bob Kaufman, Carl Solomon, and Gregory Corso. Um, so, yeah, the beat generation was definitely like influenced by the surrealists and they like got to meet a couple of them. Wow. And, like, Allen Ginsberg, like, bent down and kissed somebody's feet. And, like, sure. it was just, like, such a thing. Um, but, yeah, so these things kind of continue on as they go. But uh, that was my <laughs> quick and dirty on Dada and surrealism. There, there's so much there. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. It's a lot. And uh, it can be, um, I mean, it, it has its place. And, and um, a lot of interesting things came out of it. But um, it is very weird that all of these people just decided, like, you know what's a good idea? If we did, like, the weirdest possible shit and see if we could get away with it. And it became, like, a thing for a long time, like 30 years. So my quiz today is called Dada's and Papa's, a quiz on famous fathers. Question number one. This famous doctor wrote the book on parenting called Baby and Child Care, telling mothers, you know more than you think you do. He was the first pediatrician to study psychoanalysis to try and understand children's needs and the dynamics of a family. Who is this famous doc who lived pretty long and definitely prospered? Question number two. This Ed Hardy loving guy parlayed with his equally insufferable wife, the birth of his twins and sextuplets into a rhyming reality TV show, which ran for... Let's just say too long. Who is this former reality show star? 
Question number three. A love story for the ages, or at least the Victorian period. The marriage between Prince Albert and Queen Victoria produced nine children, all whom made it to adulthood. What was Albert's official title, which took the court 17 years to bestow upon him, the definition of which is the husband of a reigning female sovereign who is himself a prince? Question number four. Finding Nemo was a crazy popular Pixar film right out of the gate, featuring Marlin, a nervous clownfish searching the high seas for his titular son, Nemo. What actor, comedian, writer, and director voiced Marlin, whose films include Taxi Driver, Broadcast News, Drive, and Terms of Endearment, as well as voiceover work in The Simpsons Movies and The Secret Life of Pets? Question number five. The 1970s TV show Literal House on the Prairie, based on the novel series of the same name by Laura Ingalls Wilder, depicted a family living on a farm in Plum Creek near Walnut Grove, Minnesota, in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. The patriarch of the family, handsome and warm Charles Ingalls, was full of homespun wisdom and the pillar of their small farming community. What beloved actor played Papa Ingalls, who is also known as Little Joe Cartwright on Bonanza and Angel Jonathan Smith in Highway to Heaven? Question number six. Beloved actor and filmmaker Tom Hanks has three sons. Can you name them? Here are some hints. One you know already. One has an appropriate name considering his obnoxious personality. And the youngest has the name of one of Julia's favorite presidents. Question number seven. This Russian czar with a very appropriate nickname expanded the borders of his realm, but was probably plagued by mental illness and ruled Russia from 1533 until his death in 1584. It is likely that his nine children suffered years of abuse at his hands. In 1581, he beat his pregnant daughter-in-law as punishment for wearing revealing clothing, causing her to miscarry. Her husband, his son, angrily confronted his father who had banished his son's first two wives to convents after pronouncing them infertile. Incensed, the Tsar struck his heir on the head with his scepter. He died a few days later as his remorseful father prayed by his bedside for a miracle. Who is this awful, no good, very bad guy? Question number eight. Name this classic TV dad. He was married to Marion, father to kids Richie and Joni, and patient father figure to his kids' unique friends Ralphie, Potsy, Fonzie, and Chachi. Who is this happy day's dad? Question number nine. True or false? 1991's Father of the Bride, starring Steve Martin and Diane Keaton, is actually a remake. And question number 10. Finally, what is the actual premise of the 1980s TV show, My Two Dads? A, a gay couple adopts a baby girl and raises her in a warm, loving environment where hijinks ensue when she becomes a teenager. B, a woman discovers that her true paternity is more complicated than what her deceased mother told her. Two whole men are both her fathers, thanks to a rare genetic phenomenon during conception. Hijinks galore. C, two men are awarded joint custody of a girl after their mother dies, a woman for whom both of them competed for 12 years ago. Mix-ups and trials ensue. And D, after his wife dies, a man asks his best friend of 20 years, a famous movie actor, to move in with him to help raise his daughter. Hijinks ensue. We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers.
there's so many of these questions that uh, they're like, it's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. And I also think that I need more to go to more trivia things and read more <laughs> history things now. But well, we are we are woefully without trivia for a very long time. So this yes. has been, you know, it's been an issue for both of us. All right, here we go. Okay. Dada's and Papa's a quiz on famous fathers. This is Question great. number one. This famous doctor wrote the book on parenting called Baby and Child Care, telling mothers, you know more than you think you do. He was the first pediatrician to study psychoanalysis to tr- try and understand children's needs and the dynamics of a family. Who is this famous doc who lived pretty long and definitely prospered? It's uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock. It is Dr. Spock. Um, Dr. Spock was an activist in the New Left and an anti-Vietnam War movements during the 60s and early 70s. It actually like tanked his book sales for a while because he was huh. anti-Vietnam War. Um, and also at the time, his books were criticized for propagating permissiveness and an expectation of instant gratification, which allegedly led young people to join these movements, Oof. which was a charge that he denied. Um, <laughs> baby and child care still sells worldwide. Right. Um, also, for most of his life, Spock wore Brooks Brothers suits and shirts with detachable collars. But at age 75, for the first time in his life, his second wife got him to try blue jeans. Um, and at age 84, he won third place in a rowing contest, crossing four miles or 6.4 kilometers of the Sir Francis Drake Channel between Tortola and Norman Islands in two and a half hours. Just he was living life. Living his best life. Okay. Question number two. This Ed Hardy loving guy parlayed with his equally insufferable wife, the birth of his twins and sextuplets into a rhyming reality TV show, which ran for... Let's say just too long. Who is this former reality show star? It's John and Kate plus eight, and their last name just uh-huh. happens to be. It'll come to you. I believe in you. It starts with like a G. Does it start with a G? Yes, it does. Gosling. Goslin. Goslin. Yes. Good job. John Goslin. Uh, he apparently is currently a line cook at TGI Fridays and a DJ. Uh, he was he <laughs> with, was always going to be a DJ. I mean, he was always there was no denying it like that was his that was his fate. There was no way. Um, also, two of his eight children uh, currently live with him full time hmm. and they're 15. Yeah, that's pretty the 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 sex tuplets are 15 truly of a moment yeah that was a thing i hate to say that i did watch a couple of episodes during that time but they're both pretty awful people anyway moving on question number three a love story for the ages or at least the victorian period the marriage between prince albert and queen victoria produced nine children all whom made it to adulthood what was Albert's official title, which took the court 17 years to bestow upon him, the definition of which is the husband of a reigning female sovereign who is himself a prince? Ah, oh, boy. Um, I don't think this is right, but I'm going to say Prince Consort. It is Prince Consort. You Ooh. did it. Yeah. Uh, his full name was Albert Francis Charles Augustus Emmanuel, and he was from Germany. Uh, he and Vicky were first cousins, and she loved him very dearly. For more on Queen Vicky and other British queens, please check out our episode number 33 called Lovely Long Live the Queen. 
It's pretty good. Question number four. Finding Nemo was a crazy popular Pixar film right out the gate featuring Marlin, a nervous clownfish searching the high seas for his titular son, Nemo. What actor, comedian, writer, and director voiced Marlin, whose films include Taxi Driver, Broadcast News, Drive, and Terms of Endearment, as well as voiceover work in The Simpsons Movie and The Secret Life of Pets? I don't have a... I don't have a clue. I don't, I okay. can't, I can't picture, I can't, I can't imagine the <laughs> voice right now. So okay. I, I don't have an answer. Do you idea. want me to just tell you? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's Albert Brooks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor for 1987's Broadcast News and was widely praised for his performance in the 2011 film Drive, but not an Academy Award nomination. And he responded in a joke on Twitter, quote, and to the Academy, you don't like me, you really don't like me, <laughs> which is pretty funny. He's been like a, a like a character actor in like a bunch of stuff. Like yeah. I was, I I didn't recognize the name. I looked up his face and I was like, oh yeah, I've seen him in a bunch of like eighties and nineties, like like as a you know tertiary character in a mm-hmm. rom com or like you know you just don't recognize him until you see yeah. him and you're like, oh hey, that's that guy. Question number five. The 1970s TV show Little House on the Prairie, based on the novel series of the same name by Laura Ingalls Wilder, depicted a family living on a farm in Plum Creek near Walnut Grove, Minnesota, in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. The patriarch of the family, handsome and warm Charles Ingalls, was full of homespun wisdom and the pillar of their small farming community. What beloved actor played Papa Ingalls, who was also known as Little Joe Cartwright on Bonanza, and Angel Jonathan Smith in Highway to Heaven? That's Michael Landon. Oh, handsome, wonderful Michael Landon. Um, he appeared on the cover of TV Guide 22 times, second only to Lucille Ball. Oh, how about that? Uh, he, yeah, he was also a writer, director, and producer, and he died in 1991 at age 54 of pancreatic cancer. He's one of the first celebrity deaths I remember. And yes, like, remember same. like everybody being very upset. Like our moms and yes. aunts were very upset. Very upset. I remember. Yeah, my mother was very upset about Michael Landon dying. She thought he was so handsome. My mom really likes long hair on men, so <laughs> Michael Landon with like his like his shaggy curls, she yeah. was all about. Okay. Uh, question number six: Beloved actor and filmmaker Tom Hanks has three sons. Can you name them? Here are some hints. One you know already. One has an appropriate name considering his obnoxious personality. And the youngest has the name of one of Julia's favorite presidents. Okay. You got Colin. Yeah, of course. He's on Life in Pieces, and he's a delight. Little Hanks. Mm-hmm. I love him. Uh, you got Chet. Who yep. You got is Chet. The rapper. <laughs> yes. And then the last one. Um, I mean, if anybody knows me, my favorite presidents are Grover and Harry. And I don't think either of those are the littlest Hanks. Um, Colin and Chet and I don't know. I guess I'll just say Harry. You're very close. It's Truman. Oh, his name is Truman. No, I didn't know Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, because Colin is his son from his first wife. And then yes, Chet and Truman are his children with Rita Wilson. Yes. And they are, they are home. The Hankses are home as of this recording in California, self-quarantining, but they are, uh, they are over the worst of COVID-19. 
if this uh, pandemic had taken the most beloved actor uh, oh in the gosh. U.S., I think things would be really, truly bad. Do you remember 2016 when all the celebrities died? Yes. And we were like, can't get any worse than this. No. What? How, fo- how foolish. Mm. <laughs> how foolish of us. Oh, boy. Okay, so speaking of terrible things, uh, question number seven, this Russian czar with a very appropriate nickname expanded the borders of his realm, but was probably plagued by mental illness and ruled Russia from 1533 until his death in 1584. He did terrible things to his children, uh, struck his son on the head with his scepter, and his son died a few days later as his remorseful father prayed by his bedside for a miracle, which didn't happen. Who is this awful, no good, very bad guy? It's Ivan the Terrible. It is Ivan the Terrible. Um, the scene of him just after he killed his son is depicted in a surprisingly moving painting by a Russian artist named Ilya Repin entitled Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan from 1885. Question number eight. Name this classic TV dad. He was married to Marion, father to kids Richie and Joni, and patient father figure to his kids' unique friends, Ralphie, Potsy, Fonsi, and Chachi. Who is this happy day's dad? Tom Bosley. Tom Bosley? Yes, but was, it was Tom Bosley what, as the actor, but what, what is the name, name of the dad? On Happy Days. You got Richie and Marion and I guess it's not Tom. Um, <laughs> Mr. Um, Mr. C. <laughs> uh, there's a 30 Rock joke that... Um, uh, Liz Lemon does like an impression of Marion saying his name. Ugh. Does that help at all? No. Howard. Okay. Yes. It's Howard. Is it Howard? Oh, Howard. Yeah. Oh, Howard. Howard. Yeah. <laughs> Howard Cunningham. Uh, again, as you mentioned before, played by Tom Bosley. Howard's occupation was running a hardware store. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, I am consistently surprised because my sister and I used to watch uh, Happy Days pretty frequently on Nick at Night. I don't know if you remember Nick at Night, but we watched a lot of Nick at Night and also TV Land. Um, But uh, it is amazing. The Henry Winkler moving from like the coolest of cool guys to like now he's like the sweetest mensch, like little old Jewish man Mm -hmm. you've ever seen. And he went from like Italian, like Elvis impersonator, basically. To like beloved American actor. I don't know. I I love Henry Winkler. He's wonderful. Okay. Question number nine. True or false. 1991's Father of the Bride starring Steve Martin and Diane Keaton is actually a remake. True. True. It's a remake of the 1950 film of the same name starring Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor. Um, that Father of the Bride was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Picture, and Best Writing for a Screenplay. Not to be outdone, the 1991 version opened to positive reviews and became a major box office success, earning more than six times its budget. Hmm. Uh, with its success, a sequel, Father of the Bride Part Two, was released in 1995. And wasn't that one about that his wife and daughter were pregnant at the same time? Yes. Yeah, like I a think very, I'm pretty like, sure that was it. <laughs> Yeah, like, oh, so wacky, you know, now with so many babies, you know. Now with two times as many babies. Two times many. Before there were none, now there are two. (laughs) (laughs) We should work for Hollywood. Oh, absolutely. Okay, and finally, what was the actual premise of the 1980s TV show, My Two Dads? Do you want me to read them again? Okay, so 
I can picture seeing like promos for it. And the daughter was the girl that went on to be in Step by Step. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. With her like great, you know, poofy blonde hair. 80s hair. And her 80s hair and her bangs. I think it is not, it's not the last one. It's not the one that, that the mom dies and somebody famous moves in to help. Because that's okay. very like full house. And Yes. Okay. So okay. Uh, the first one was. A gay, uh, couple, of, a gay, gay couple, couple adopts a baby girl. Okay. It's mm-hmm. not that one. That's too early. 80s is, the okay. late 80s is too early for that kind of stuff. The second okay. one is two whole dads are both her dads. <laughs> and the third yep. one was uh, the court gave custody yes to two I'm, guys i'm uh-huh. gonna say c the one where the court gave custody to two guys you are correct <laughs> two men are awarded joint custody of a girl after their mother dies a woman for whom both of them competed for 12 years ago uh that's the show started like that's just like the anna nicole smith baby thing though do you remember yes that? yes absolutely it's a very and i think people made that like <laughs> comparison when it happened <laughs> So the show starred Paul Reiser and Greg Evigan, I don't know who that is, mm-hmm. as Michael and Joey, the titular two dads, and ran for three seasons between 87 and 90. Um, the daughter, Nicole's paternity, is never revealed on the show, but in the episode Pop the Question, Michael and Joey, after a falling out, have a DNA test to determine which of them is Nicole's biological father. Ooh. The test is conducted against Nicole's wishes. <gasps> She's happier not knowing who her true father is, and she destroys the results before opening them. Uh, Michael and Joey later resolve their differences and reconcile. I don't know if you knew this, but the cast was rounded out by former football player Dick Buckus, who <laughs> manages the cafe on the building's first floor. Mm. The cafe, which is known as Clawickies, was the second spot in the show around which the plot usually revolved, the first being the family's apartment. Dick Buckus so, yeah. just showed up in so many like oh, my teen, gosh. teen TV shows in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, what else is he doing, you know? Dick Buckus. Can you believe it? But yeah, he was there for two seasons and then skipped out on the third. Oh, deadbeat. So, deadbeat. So, uh, yeah, great job, Joel. Yeah, you did Good a job great on the quiz. Job. Fun quiz. Thanks. 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 Uh, so, um, yeah, hope you all are doing well. Thanks for listening, you guys. Uh, we appreciate you. And, uh, yeah. Thanks uh, for sending us. Thanks to everyone who's been sending us like topic ideas and things. We definitely have them on our list um, because, uh, <laughs> you know, what else are we doing? <laughs> so, um, and uh, so, yeah, thanks so much for listening, you guys. Yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.